It's been just about impossible to discuss politics in the last decade without discussing student debt. Presidential candidates have made it central to their platform, millions of voters consider it a key priority, and the nearly $2 trillion pile of student debt amassing in the United States means it's a central facet of our economy. But shouldn't we consider this topic as more than just pure economics? In their paper Student Debt is a Civil Rights Issue, Dalia Jimenez and Jonathan Glader argue exactly that. Pulling from both the history of this issue and the contemporary doctrines of our legal codes, they outline the equity implications of student debt for students of color, as well as potential avenues to solve this crisis. All that next on the Consortium for Policy Research and Education's Research Minutes podcast. Welcome to the CPRI Research Minutes podcast. I am joined by Dalia Jimenez, Professor of Law from University of California, Irvine, and Jonathan Glader, Professor of Law from University of California, Berkeley, to discuss the recent paper, Student Debt as a Civil Rights Issue, as part of our continuing series on student debt. And first things first, I want to get into some historical background. Your paper mentions that debt as a form of racial oppression is nothing new. You know, mortgages and collateralized bonds were created as a way for slave owners to generate capital way back in the day. Can you give us a bit more background on the history of the government's role in dictating the financial situation of you know, Black Americans through debt? Sure. You've already touched on one of the mechanisms for this, but in the aftermath of the, of the Civil War, one of the subordinating practices was debt peonage, right? Put a, a former slave into debt and require uh, labor as a means of repayment. And it could be debt to a landowner, right, for use of land, it could be debt to a store for goods, or it could be a debt to the government. For example, if someone were facing fines or other fees for infractions that they had no way to repay. And disproportionately, these kinds of penalties could be enforced against Black people. So it could be a, a powerful tool. It's one that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about in the history of the Reconstruction era and its aftermath. More recently, there's been exploitation by financial institutions uh, imposing higher mortgage costs on on Black homebuyers, for example, um, or refusing outright to lend. All of this kind of highlights the conundrum of of using debt as a, a policy tool at all, because if you provide someone a loan to uh, achieve some benefit, the price, of course, is that they have to repay it. So it, it's a regressive instrument in that people who don't need to borrow can afford the benefit independently of taking on debt. And you mentioned that these policies are, are really nothing new uh, you know, surrounding student debt and that uh, these policies themselves have evolved over the course of the last 100 years, 50 years, 20 years, you know, even today. And the these policies surrounding student debt were not necessarily a lack of foresight so much as a failure of political will in the face of the rhetoric of private gain in higher education, as your paper sort of makes clear. We saw a massive shift in student aid policies in the 1970s towards loans and away from grants and scholarships. Can you give us some, again, some historical background on how those governmental policy changes laid the foundation for the student debt crisis that we're seeing today? So through the 1970s, something called the Basic Education Opportunity Grant covered a considerable share of public institution tuition, right? So federal grant aid could cover as much as 80% of cost at the peak. And then 
we have what uh, Suzanne Mettler, she's a, a professor at Cornell. She's written a, a wonderful book that touches on this. We have what she calls um, policy drift, where the basic grant dollar amounts did not keep pace with the rising cost of higher education. And Congress didn't affirmatively act to raise those grants in the Reagan years in the 80s. So, and tuition, of course, kept rising. It's important to, to note that this policy drift doesn't really require hostility towards colleges and universities or towards students. It's, it's just inaction. So it's not necessarily an explicit change in policy so much as an undermining of policy goals through inaction. And it's in this period that the um, education secretary writes an infamous New York Times op-ed against greedy colleges. Some, some folks may re- remember this, charging that the availability of, of some forms of federal funds were facilitating uh, or encouraging colleges and universities to raise tuition more. It's kind of a strange take on history, but it helps illustrate perhaps some of the, the resistance to increasing aid to students because it's, it's viewed as, as having uh, an undesirable incentive effect. And I say it's strange because one of the reasons we got um, federal student loans in the, in the first place was students were turning to banks and other commercial lenders, and the interest rates they were charging were, were high and shocking to lawmakers. And so the, the, the federal loan program was supposed to be a more affordable alternative. But, and I know this is a long-winded answer, I apologize, but, but moving forward in time, I've done 70s, 80s, and now in the 90s, that's when we actually see the loan volumes going up. Um, and part of this is because of changes in eligibility standards, right? Relatively small, precise technical changes, like whether um, someone's home is a factor in considering wealth and eligibility for, for loans. And the result is, is greater eligibility, uh, and more and more students and families turn to these federal student loan resources to try to keep up with rising tuition. And that's an, that's an interesting viewpoint on things because it sort of frames the student loans as a choice and one that like is sort of not ultimately necessary, but provides an alternate pathway for people to finance their education. But as your paper highlights, you know, disproportionately speaking for Black and Latinx students, borrowing is not a choice, but a necessity. This seems like, you know, really either of you who have expertise on this, but can you explain the ways that indebtedness uh, furthers this already present and not limited to education, racial wealth gap that exists for students across the racial and socioeconomic spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. We can't, we can't separate, Jonathan's a historian, but we can't separate this from the history in this country uh, for Black and Latinx people as we started talking about, you know, that history, it has been rife with subjugation and uh, inability to to sort of participate in society at the same in the same way that white um, students. So more than half of all students who go to two or four year higher education institutions borrow federal student loans at some point in their studies. And most of those are Black and Latinx uh, students. And we have a, a sizable and persistent racial wealth gap in the United States and income gap as well. You know, the difference between the top and the bottom of the wealth distribution in the United States is, is huge, but it is particularly stark among white and black households. 
regardless of education levels, white households with a bachelor's degree or postgraduate education are more than three times as wealthy as Black households with the same degree attainment, for example. And Black households with a college-educated head has less wealth than a white family whose head did not even obtain a high school diploma. So we're not starting at the same places. In general, uh, the, the average Black student does not have the same family wealth to draw from to go to college than the average uh, white student. And so that means that they need to borrow and they need to borrow because they need to go to college because credentialing is extremely important in order to actually do what everyone is sort of hoping to do, the American dream of doing better than your family, you know, doing better than your parents. And that is absolutely, so college is absolutely necessary for that. We have a labor market that essentially demands it even for jobs where um, it didn't used to be necessary. And it is arguably not at all necessary to have a college degree, but the labor markets demand it. And so these students have to borrow to attend college. Uh, and so they do, by the time, for instance, that uh, Black students are in their fourth year of study, 90% of them and 72% of Latinx undergraduate students have student loan debt as opposed to or as compared to 66% of white students. And, you know, it's not a choice. It's a necessity. So sort of all of the uh, negatives that come with debt are much worse for Black and Latinx students. And you brought up a lot of really salient examples of the numerical differences between, you know, white students and Black students and Latinx students. One that was particularly interesting to me that came up in your paper is that a dozen years after borrowing, 38% of white students had defaulted on their loans compared to 48% of Latinx students and 65% of Black students. A, a, a truly staggering figure when you look at it. Uh, and the, another thing that you really elucidated very clearly is how this is a trap, basically. This is a pernicious cycle that students who do not have the same access to generational wealth and you know racial benefiting, basically, based on the historical structures of the United States, don't really have a choice but to avoid this. Can you elaborate on how disproportionately Black and Latinx students are, are in this trap when it comes to repaying their loans and, and trying to avoid the ultimate disastrous end goal of defaulting on them? Well, the other statistic that I want to make sure that we get on the table, because I think it is a really shocking one, is the amount owed 12 years after graduation. Black borrowers 12 years after graduation owe more than 13% than what they borrowed, whereas, uh, and the typical Latinx borrower owes 83% of what they were initially borrowed, um, and the typical white students just 60%. So white students and Latinx students have paid off part of what they've borrowed. Interestingly, you know, this is more than a decade later, nobody has paid off. Like the numbers are still high in terms of how much is owed in, you know, uh, writ large, but black borrowers owe more, 13% more than the, what they originally borrowed. So it's, it's a stark picture. It's a trap. Black borrowers, Latinx borrowers, they start off in a worse position given the historical context. Uh, and then they have to borrow and then they enter, they, they mostly borrow to go to predatory schools. Also, just the majority of people going to for-profit predatory schools are Black and, and Latinx, and they particularly target marketing towards them and who have you know worse outcomes. So they have worse educational outcomes. And then they enter a racialized, racist labor market. So it's just sort of bad, bad, bad. Um, and that's not to say the app that's bad for everyone, but it's, it's a trap that, yes, some escape but it's still a trap. And can you elaborate a little more on the the role of for-profit schools in this entire operation? I mean, they, it's a business model that depends overwhelmingly on federal spending, but at the same time, there's 
higher rates of fraud and misrepresentation and closures of for-profit schools. That's really striking, to borrow a word, from your paper. Can you sort of further the discussion you were having earlier about how for-profit schools are targeting students of color and how this is proliferating the student debt crisis? Striking is, I mean, it is a polite word, I guess, <laughs> for what it is. I mean, it's, I mean, there's so many, the list goes on. Every time I go uh, looking for the list of schools, for-profit schools, which are in the thousands at various points in time, schools that have closed amidst investigations as a result of investigations, as a result of their administrators or owners actually pleading guilty of being indicted, et cetera. The list is, is huge. Um, it's massive. And many, not all, but many of those for-profit schools um, receive federal dollars through federal student aid, meaning the federal government has decided that their students would be eligible for this, so their students are getting something out of this. But students, what we know about for-profits, and again, this is like an average thing, right? So that's not to say that there's not like an awesome for-profit out there, but students at for-profit institutions pay more, they're more likely to borrow, they borrow larger amounts than those attending nonprofit or public school. And in fact, an associate's degree recipient as a two-year program at for-profit schools borrow almost the same as a bachelor's degree recipient at public colleges. And so this is despite the fact that, of course, a typical bachelor's, typically a four-year degree, requires twice as many courses as an associate's degree. There's also worse graduation rates of every, any type of institution. Uh, in 2008, for example, only 22% of the first-time full-time bachelor's degree students at for-profit colleges graduated within six years as compared to 55% at public institutions and 65% at private nonprofit colleges. Again, the absolute numbers are still astonishing that only at the best thing, 65% of students at any of these categories uh, graduate within six years, but the numbers at for-profit colleges are just you know incredible, 20, only 22%. For-profit degree holders encounter lower hourly earnings than associate degree holders whether they went to public, private, or nonprofit colleges, and earnings that are not significantly different than high school graduates. So they come out with debt, more debt than if had they gone to a community college or a public college, and then they're not earning more than had they had an, a high school degree. So it's really just, on average, a terrible, terrible deal. And yet, in 2009, they took, and this is just because we don't have very good data for, you know, for all the years, but as an example, for-profit institutions took in approximately a fifth, one-fifth, 20% of all Pell Grants for low-income students. And those Pell Grants were used by about, by about 60% of Black students in 2011. They also captured $1.7 billion in GI benefits in 2012. I mean, it's, uh, it's a huge part of the trap, I think, the for-profit. And if I can jump in, the for-profits are a complicated question also because there there is some research that in certain spaces they can do an effective job and serve students well. The problem is the overall patterns that Dahlia just described. One question that one might ask is, is why uh, is this possible, right, for federal funds to be used in this way by a sector that disproportionately doesn't serve students well? And we have to, to recognize that the higher ed finance system that we have is, is designed to facilitate the choice of the student. So the, the money can be taken by the student and allocated to the school that that student wants to attend. 
And once we do that, that means the student might make a choice of institution that is not the best in terms of the probable outcome. What can we do about this? Like, is, is there anything to be done or do we just sort of have to accept the predatory nature of for-profits as an endemic part of their existence? I think we don't have to accept it. I think at least we don't have to feed it. So no federal loans for for-profit schools, period, the end. Exclude them from Title IV. There may be exceptions to in the for-profit space that are amazing. They should find some other ways, like the private market, to fund themselves. I mean, I, I think that basically solves that problem. I would completely agree with my co-author. You'll be shocked to hear. Uh, the only thing I would, would add is I would also want regulatory attention of the terms of loans if students were taking out private loans to fund for-profit education because some of the allegations against for-profits in recent years have involved essentially deceptive advertising. And I would want to ensure that student borrowers had at least as robust protections as they have now if they took out a, a private, that is a non-federal loan, to pay for a course of study at a for-profit. Yeah, great, great point. My assumption is that the market starves, basically, if there's no federal loans to feed it. And so it shrinks dramatically. That doesn't mean that what remains will be, you know, particularly helpful to students. There's probably not really, but it would be a very different beast. I want to shift gears a little bit back to something we discussed slightly earlier, and that's that's defaulting on student loans. More than 1 million students defaulted on their debt in 2018. And we like to sort of you know, sweep problems under the rug a little bit and say, oh, this is just like a conceptual issue, but this is over 1 million people just in that one calendar year who have defaulted on their debt. And we know that the income-based uh, repayment plans or IDRs and consumer protections have failed to address the student debt crisis for students and students of color. You know, borrowers of color are less likely to be placed on these IDRs. Loan servicers disproportionately sue defaulted borrowers and communities of color. Can you talk about why this has been the case or what you've observed and also how bankruptcy laws have changed and been restructured such that students can be more easily prevented from discharging their debt? One of the challenges that students face when they begin repayment of their student loans is there, there are, in fact, multiple repayment plans that they have to choose among. So they're not defaulted into, that's the wrong word to use, right? But they're not defaulted into um, an income-driven repayment plan, which would limit how much of their income they would have to pay towards their loans. So that kind of complexity already is where you have to choose a plan is one reason that these various repayment options haven't had quite the beneficial effect that we might have wanted to uh, to see. So the bankruptcy history here is is rather interesting. We basically, you know, have federal loans being issued uh, in a small way before there's any limit on bankruptcy uh, protection or bankruptcy discharge, the ability to sort of get rid of those loans. As the numbers increase and as the availability of the program expands, you see in the congressional record just all this talk about people taking advantage of this, people, you know, graduating and immediately trying to discharge their loans before they're going to go on to be doctors and uh, lawyers and, you know, very lucrative things. And these are hyperbolic statements by 
Congress people, their congressmen particularly, they're hyperbolic because they have actually very few examples. The only examples that they have are examples where a judge, a bankruptcy judge did what bankruptcy judges are supposed to do, which is to say, hey, this is not you're technically meeting all the requirements of the bankruptcy code and that these loans could be dischargeable, but this is an abuse of the process and I'm not going to let you get that discharge. So those are the examples, the examples in which the system worked to catch the cheats. And the other examples are uh, hypothetical things. And at the same time that Congress imposes the first set of restrictions on bankruptcy discharge, bankruptcy itself as a system being the safety valve and a sort of part of our to the extent we have a social safety net. At the same time that they do that, there's a significant number of congressional representatives who think, hey, we need to have a study on this because you're just giving us hypothetical examples. This is really happening. And so they commissioned the GAO to do, um, the Government uh, Accountability Office, to do a study on this. And they put the law on pause from effectiveness, thinking that the study's going to come out, you know, the next year and there'll be chance to edit it. The study comes out and the study finds that people who are filing for bankruptcy with student debt are regular people. They're not lawyers. They're not doctors. They're mostly either unemployed, homemakers or teachers, just regular, regular people. And there's very few of them. And it just does not at all line up with the story that they've made up. That doesn't you know, it doesn't phase Congress. They have to, the procedure, they would have to go back and undo something they already passed. They don't do that. And so the first set of restrictions that we get is a set of restrictions that, let's see, 1976, that says for five years after you begin having to repay your student loans, you don't get to have bankruptcy discharge unless you can prove undue hardship. And then they change that to say seven years. You know, you have to wait seven years post-graduation. And then they change that to remove the years and over five or six other set of changes, they expanded the bucket of of types of loans that come in here to not just be federal loans, but to be state loans and then to be loans where a state is involved (laughs) in uh, guaranteeing them or loans where a nonprofit, any nonprofit is involved and then ultimately private loans as well. Now it's important to say, because every time I have to say this every time as a bankruptcy person, the words student loan are not in the bankruptcy code. The The section that describes what kind of loans are non-dischargeable is actually long and confusing. And there's a bunch of words and none of those are student loans. So, I mean, it includes many loans that we think of as, as student loans, uh, but it also includes things that we don't think of as student loans necessarily. So, for instance, a loan for a uh, program uh, that is not accredited by anyone or a loan for a program where that program doesn't get federal funds, those are not the types of loans that are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. In other words, those are dischargeable loans. But anyway, the the general gist is that we have expanded this as much as possible on these scare tactics that never panned out. And there's never really been, I mean, you can always point to one or two people. And the only reason you can point to them is because they were denied a discharge by a bankruptcy judge. And, and say, oh, yeah, that's we want to avoid those people. But the bankruptcy judges have been doing a, a great job at stopping those people and sometimes others that really do deserve it, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I just was going to add two things. One related to bankruptcy. Part of the problem is, is the bankruptcy code uses the phrase undue hardship as the basis for whether someone can discharge an education 
loan, but that term undue hardship is undefined in the bankruptcy code. So it's not clearly or consistent. It doesn't have a clear or consistent meaning. The other thing I wanted to say, going back to your original question, I had a, a moment to think about the connection to income-driven repayment again. I want to highlight that the goal of these different repayment plans, the complexity of which I alluded to a, a moment ago, as well as of, of consumer protection law in this area, is not to make higher education free, right? I mean, these are designed to make the repayment fair and more manageable. They don't change the fact and weren't intended to change the fact that poorer people have to borrow and have to borrow more, and Black and Latinx people are disproportionately poor. It's not that surprising that these efforts don't completely resolve the problem of student indebtedness for these or other student borrower populations. And the two of you have done really a fantastic job of sort of setting out the scene and, and giving us all this historical context and all these, you know, raw, hard numbers to elucidate just how fundamentally unfair this system can be. But I, I want to look a little bit towards the future and sort of what we can do and how we conceptualize these issues. And this narrative of higher education as a private good, frankly, obscures the benefits of higher education for society writ large, for individuals and the societies that individuals partake in particularly in a democracy like the United States. In your personal definitions, what should higher education do in a democracy and how should higher education contribute to the public good? So in concrete terms, there are desirable things that happen that correlate with higher levels of education, right? The, the propensity to commit crimes declines, tax revenues go up health outcomes are better, levels of civic participation increase, happiness, some measures of happiness increase. Uh, and there are studies on this. There's a, a wonderful book by Walter McMahon called Higher Education, Greater Good, which he argues that we're underinvesting in the accessibility of higher education because of all these, these benefits that would accrue if more people had access. But I don't think that's necessarily all or perhaps what you wanted to, to ask about, because beyond what we can measure in, in tangible ways, right now, and, and Dahlia and I were talking about this the other day, we face this kind of a terrifying trifecta, that's, that's my phrase, of problems, because we have, we have the pandemic, we've got global warming, and we've got racial justice, all confronting the country at the same time. And, and it suggests we need more scientists, we need more engineers, we need more doctors, we need more political scientists, we need more philosophers, we need even poets and lawyers to help address these three challenges. And it's, it's striking because the National Defense Education Act, which was kind of the precursor to the Higher Education Act back in the late 1950s, that law was passed when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik out of concern over the U.S. losing the space race. And that was just one thing. And now we've, now we've got three. So the, the demands for what we need higher education for and the extent to which we need to make higher education more accessible, the, the case is, is even stronger now, it seems to me, than it was then. The decisions are more difficult, right? The, the, the complexity of the problems we face is that much greater. We need to have more people bringing more expertise to bear so that we can navigate 
what looks like an increasingly uncertain and frankly scary historical moment. I completely agree with all of that. I would just highlight the fact, I guess, that this focus on uh, you know education as a as a private good or the gains to be gained by the individual from achieving um, you know from increasing their level of education, first of all, are not the same for everyone. Black and Latinx people do not obtain the same gains as the average gains that are the ones often reported, which are primarily really white gains. You know, that's flawed from the beginning, right? Uh, in fact, in some, in many cases, as we talked about, it's not, it's a necessity to even just get to, as one of the examples from earlier, you know, a Black family head needs to um, have an, a bachelor's degree to earn the same as a white family head that only has a high school degree. So these private benefits that have been the focus in the last couple of decades are a mirage, and particularly for Black and Latinx students. And then that completely, that focus on the personal responsibility, you took out a loan, you should pay for it. It's your fault. You shouldn't have gone, you know, you should have gone to community college or you should have gone to some other program or whatever. That ignores and obscures everything that Jonathan talked about. Even if there are some special private benefits to be gained, we are harming ourselves as a society by, you know, this idea that like, it's your fault. And, uh, you know, that was the world we live in and uh, you should have known better and um, and you did get benefits. And so therefore, that's how we should continue, uh, you know, doing things, because that's the way we've always done it, which is obviously, of course, not true. The private good framing, if, if I can just add, also, it proves too much, because if, if we view higher education as a purely private good, the argument for any public subsidy for the availability of loans, for the availability of grants, is severely weakened. If the basis of the critique is, look, why should we subsidize someone who's going to get rich when they're going to get rich? They don't need the subsidy. So it it goes further than I think um, even proponents of the critique want to go. Dahlia, your your response prompted a question that I was thinking about earlier uh, in that this framing of college as a choice and as a as an explicitly private good emphasizes this personal responsibility rhetoric that, you know, you are the one who is getting higher wages and better jobs and upward mobility. Thus, it is your responsibility to pay, you know, your student debt that you've incurred. But as your paper notes, the, the returns that have come on higher, higher education investments have stagnated, to put it politely, over the course of the last two decades. Can you discuss how the economic and social conditions that allowed that personal responsibility narrative to rise in maybe the 80s and 90s isn't necessarily present anymore? Yeah, I think we can't look at any of this in isolation. Marshall Steinbaum and uh, Julie Margetta Morgan did an analysis and found that really declining worker power explains a lot of the wage premium that remains for higher education. It's been sustained solely because of falling wages for lower levels of education. So it's not a story of like, look at how more people are educated and now they know more and they want to do this. It's a story of look at the necessity that people have to get higher and higher levels of education in order to get the same jobs that their parents had with lower levels of education. So the story is not, it's both about, you know, education to enter the labor market, but it's about the labor market and uh, monopolistic and other uh, sort of labor market problems that are allowing and union, you know, union busting rules, et cetera, that are 
allowing the labor market to demand more education for uh, the same jobs. Which is not to say that having the, the higher degree, right, a college degree, is not critically important as a protective measure, although how protective it is varies by the usual demographic characteristics, um, as Dahlia alluded to already. So it's tremendously important, but it's in a defensive posture rather than a higher earning necessarily posture. Your paper recommends two major policies and two that are really discussed frequently in this in this discourse, student debt cancellation and tuition-free higher education at state universities. How would you go about structuring these programs? So just to frame the solutions, the reason for these two solutions is just, maybe it's obvious, but I'll make the point anyway, which is that we, we think that debt as a policy choice was the wrong choice. It was a mistake to basically support higher education in this way for the federal government to do this. And so we have to fix that mistake. You know, if you, if you made a mistake, you try to fix it as best as possible. At this point, the best way to do that would be cancellation of the illegitimate debt. And, uh, you know, there's been all sorts of proposals for like total cancellation to, you know, 10,000, 50,000, other kinds of, you know, uh, bankruptcy specific changes, et cetera. At, at this point in time, at least I will take anything <laughs> in terms of cancellation. Um, I do think there are numbers, like if for whatever reason we don't want to change the the books uh, so dramatically, there are ways to do it in a way that would primarily affect, primarily inured benefit to Black and Latinx students who are, um, and poor students who uh, are suffering the most. So cancellation is the way to fix the past, but you can't just repeat making your mistakes. You've got to actually attempt to support higher education. I mean, we believe in, in supporting higher education as a, you know, the government should, but you, you have to do that differently. Once again, shockingly, completely agree with, with Dahlia. There's the problem that is accumulated, right, manifesting in, in the, what is it, $1.7, $1.8 trillion pool of student loans out there. And so reducing or eliminating the burden of that for current students, current borrowers, is tremendously important and would have uh, various knock-on effects that would be highly desirable. And this is something that the president uh, at least arguably has the power to do with the stroke of the proverbial pen under the plain meaning of the Higher Education Act, a provision which allows for the secretary of the department to compromise and settle student loans. So that would deal with the current, right, the accumulated problem of outstanding student indebtedness. But as Dahlia says, it, it wouldn't address the prospective problem of how are we going to ensure that higher ed remains accessible going forward without accumulating a new pool of student debt. And that's where uh, there are interesting choices to be made that the states could pursue in terms of greater financing of public higher education for their students, for in-state residents. There are also possibilities of, of federal support of accessibility of public institutions, as well as things that have done in, been done in the past, like increasing uh, the dollar amount of, of Pell Grants and steps like that. The, the one additional point I, I want to flag is in these conversations about making higher education free, it's not just tuition that we need to remember, because it, even if we eliminate tuition, Students still face costs of attendance, um, costs of living, costs of food, 
Uh, increasingly, there's attention to costs of transportation that can get in the way of matriculating, of attending, and of graduating and completing a course of study. In my view, I, ideally, all the burden of all of this would be taken off the students who too often are unable to bear them in order to preserve higher education opportunity. And that perfectly anticipates uh, the next question I was going to ask, which is that, you know, we, yes, tuition-free college would be great, but we'd also like these students to eat and have books and have all these other things. And as you talked about various means of the government supporting these uh, expenditures, two things came to mind. And one is, you know, state block grants tied to state universities keeping tuition at zero. And the other one that seems to be a little more politically contentious, but has some growing momentum is reparations. Uh, how do you see that movement and that concept tying into this whole uh, situation? I think it's fair to say when we presented this, it's increasingly difficult to talk about student debt and higher education finance without talking about everything else, because it is tied up in and affected by so many other challenges that confront us. And, and reparations is one, because, because reparations would be a source of funds that would help to close the racial wealth gap that we've already touched on. But it's hard to think about this without also grappling with what we think higher education is supposed to do, what the purpose is. One of the objections to cancellation is that uh, higher education leads to higher income, so cancellation rewards people who don't need it. And so people without higher education are effectively subsidizing people who are high earners as a result of access to higher education. The problem is when debt's the instrument, that shapes students' choices, right? Some students will be deterred from pursuing higher education at all. Others will make different choices about what to study and what kind of jobs to pursue because of the prospect of debt. So it would be better, if from my point of view, to impose a tax on those students who do in fact earn high incomes after the fact, rather than to disincentivize higher education by requiring students to borrow. So now we're talking about tax reform too. This is the, again, just an, an illustration of the extent to which higher education access implicates uh, a whole host of, of additional challenges. But any redistribution of wealth is, is politically controversial to say the least, which is not a reason not to try. So our paper is about how uh, student debt is a civil rights issue. There are other civil rights issues, not just student debt. And um, would canceling student debt, let's say, and changing our higher education system fix the racial wealth gap? Well, no. Will it make it better? Yes. Do we need to do other things to fix the racial wealth gap? Yes. But we should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. The idea that we you know, we need to do all these fixes and uh, student debt is one of them. Well, we should not forget the fact that at least as to the current debt, as Jonathan mentioned, the president does have the ability to erase a lot, if not all, but certainly a lot of the existing debt. And that there are reasons, not even just the civil rights reasons, but there are efficiency reasons to erase that debt. Part of which have to do with, you know, the fact that we are going to restart payments at some point, I guess. And if we do restart payments, um, you know, we will go back to the problems with servicers, the problems with violations of consumer laws in collecting uh, from consumers, and that the size of the portfolio of the number of loans and the number of people affected is massive. And we have a historical 
experience having a had a hard time dealing with that. So we should cut that down just just as for efficiency reasons. We should have less of that. Um, and the president currently can do that and can do that fairly quickly. And yes, that should not be all that we do. And it, in my uh, ideal world, that, you know, the president canceling some large uh, amount of student debt, maybe 10000 like he said, pre, you know, getting elected, uh, or 50000 uh, like Senator Warren and others um, have asked for, then doing that might spur Congress to actually take action on, you know, free college uh, going forward. Well, thank you so much to both of you. And before we go, I just want to ask if there's any, if there are any other key points that we didn't address that you really feel, uh, you know, bear mentioning. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you've been waiting for the right opportunity to bring up? I have three brief things. One I alluded to, and that was just the role of complexity. When we when we think about how do we want to promote accessibility of higher education, complexity itself is a barrier. So there's the FAFSA, the form that students have to fill out to apply for student aid, and it's an ordeal. There's the repayment plan selection, right, that happens when you enter repayment after completing a course of study or dropping out. If you're trying to get public service loan forgiveness, which we haven't really talked about, that is uh, administratively complex for the, the student borrower to navigate. We ought to be making this easy. I mean, in general, when you want someone to do something, you make it easy. Uh, so that's one quick point. The, the second quick point, in the paper, we, we uh, and this is thanks to Dahlia, we introduced the, the concept of predatory inclusion, the idea that a, a benefit is made available, but on terms that undermine its value. And so we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that student loans do make higher education more accessible, right? People who would otherwise not be able to finance it now can. But the value of the education is now weighed down by the obligation to repay at the other end, and that obligation is not evenly distributed, right? It's obviously poorer students who have to borrow more. And we have to ask ourselves, is this the way that we want to facilitate higher ed access? And the last thing is it's a chance to help put our current challenges into context, because policy, law, exist in in a political, cultural, historical context. And so the use of debt, as, as Dahlia mentioned, is a, a policy choice with consequences. And it becomes more visible what some of those consequences are as the context changes, right? And, and for us now, the context that's changed, the dollar amounts are so much larger than they were in decades past. It's always hard to take into account context and so providing an audience with a, a better understanding of the, of the context, that's what we're supposed to do. And, and so I really, again, appreciate the opportunity. Dalia Jimenez is a professor of law from UC Irvine. Jonathan Glader is a professor of law from UC Berkeley. Their paper, Student Debt is a Civil Rights Issue, is available online, including at the Harvard Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Law Review. Thank you so much to the both of you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, yes. This podcast was brought to you by the Consortium for Policy Research and Education. Make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts to keep up with all of our content.